Sadly, Billie Holiday's strange fruit is still applicable today because unarmed African-Americans are still being shot by police. We here at Solutions to Violence, along with our guest today, Kevin Cosby, would like to see that changed. Today's program is being produced by the Loma Fellowship of Reconciliation and Swords of Justice. The keynote speaker is Dr. Kevin Cosby, pastor of St. Stephen's Baptist Church and president of Simmons College in Louisville, Kentucky. Hello, folks. We are Solutions to Violence. We are happy you can join us today. You're listening to Forward Radio, WFMP 106.5 FM. Solutions to Violence is a program of and sponsored by Forward Radio. Forward Radio is an affiliate of the Louisville Fellowship of Reconciliation. The following is part of WFMP's public affairs educational programming. The views expressed are those of our guests and not the station. If you'd like to share your views, you can do so by emailing us at solutionsofviolence18 at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. The following announcement is for the benefit of our virtual Zoom audience. Hi folks, my name is Jim Johnson. I want to let you know that this third Thursday lunch session sponsored by the Lobo Fellowship of Reconciliation and Source of Justice is being recorded by Solutions of Violence and that recording will air on WFMP 106.5 FM radio. We encourage you to ask questions during our Q&A session, but please remember to state your name so that our radio audience knows who is speaking. Today's third Thursday lunch presentation will air March 22nd, 23rd, and 24th on Solutions of Violence on Mondays, 5 p.m., Tuesdays at 8 a.m., and Wednesdays at 6 a.m. You can listen live stream if you visit our website at forwardradio.org and click on Listen Live Now. Also, the Louisville Fellowship of Reconciliation produces an online journal called Pursuit. If you're interested in submitting an article for Pursuit, Pursuit will publish it. Send your article to Russ Greenlee by emailing him at russgreenlee at yahoo.com. Thanks for your consideration. Source of Justice Barbara Boyd will introduce today's guest, today's speaker, Dr. Kevin Cosman. Hello, everybody. My name is Barbara Boyd, and I am one of the co-chairs of Sowers of Justice and a member of the Fellowship of Reconciliation Third Thursday Luncheon Planning Committee. And also, I'm president of the local chapter of ASALA, Association for the Study of African American Life and History. It's my great pleasure today to introduce my pastor, Dr. Kevin W. Cosby. Senior Pastor, St. Stephen Baptist Church, President, Simmons College of Kentucky, a private historically Black college and university. For more than 30 years, Dr. Cosby has served as the Senior Pastor of St. Stephen Baptist Church, the largest African-American church in the state of Kentucky, as well as the largest private employer of African-Americans in the state. In 2005, Dr. Cosby was inaugurated as the 13th president of Simmons College of Kentucky. In 2007, he led the once-fledging college to reclaim its original campus, which was lost during the Great Depression and has since expanded to three campus locations. Under Dr. Cosby's visionary leadership, the college earned national accreditation from the Association of Biblical Higher Education, ABHE, and expanded its degrees program. Dr. Cosby uncovered the rich history of Simmons, which was established by former slaves. And in 2014, Simmons was recognized by the United States Department of Education as a historically Black college and university. During his first decade there, Dr. Cosby refused to take a salary to stabilize the college 
and returned more than $700,000. Dr. Cosby was the convener of the Angela Project, so named after the first enslaved person to step off the slave ship in Jamestown, Virginia in 1619. The Angela Project was a three-year conference that led up to the 400th year commemoration of slavery in America in 2019. Dr. Cosby explained the purpose of the Angela Project was to re-engage the church in activism, to get back to our roots as proponents of justice. He is one of our nation's most influential leaders. He was inducted into the gallery of great Black Kentuckians at the Kentucky State Capitol in 2015. At the request of Muhammad Ali, he served as one of the eulogists at his funeral in 2016. And he was inducted into the Martin Luther King Jr. Board of Preachers of Morehouse College in 2017. Dr. Cosby has and earned doctor of ministry degree and is pursuing his second doctorate, a PhD at Union Institute and University in Cincinnati, Ohio. He has a new book, which will be released this spring in 2021, a biblical commentary on the American descendants of slave ADOS entitled Getting to the Promised Land, published by Westminster John Knox Press. Dr. Cosby is married to the former Barnetta Turner. They have two adult children, Christine Nicole and Kevin Christopher. And ladies and gentlemen, it gives me great pleasure to introduce Dr. Cosby. One, one little input. On the Q&A, we'd ask you to put those in the chat and use the icon on your device to raise your hand. And now I present Dr. Kevin Cosby. To my good friend, Barbara Boyd, thank you so very much for such a gracious and really undeserving uh, introduction. I, I'm just honored to have been asked to, uh, to participate in this dialogue and uh, I'm excited about it, expanding, always expanding our perspective on how we can advance the cause of justice, which is ultimately the prerequisite uh, for reconciliation. My basic premise about reconciliation, especially uh, as it relates to racial reconciliation, is that reparations is a necessary prerequisite uh, for reconciliation on the racial front. And the reason why it seems as though the issue of race, how we can fix race and the acrimony that seems to be so persistent in our country is because we have not had the courage to address what is the fundamental cause of our divide, and that is the wealth gap. And this wealth gap that we experience in our country was socially engineered. And if the wealth gap is to be repaired, then to quote Martin Luther King Jr. in his book, Drive Towards Freedom, those who have been the victims of special mistreatment must also be the beneficiaries of special treatment uh, I hope everyone heard my 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 uh, remarks about Barbara. I don't know if you did or not, but um, let me just say very quickly um, that Barbara is one of the most outstanding persons that I know, and I, I'm just so honored to have been introduced by her and to have been asked to come and to share with you some thoughts about the critical issue of reparations. Uh, I appreciate that your passion is for justice and reconciliation. Uh, however, I believe that reparations is a necessary prerequisite for reconciliation. 
And one of the reasons why racial reconciliation seems so elusive is because we have not dealt with what is the fundamental problem that exists between blacks and whites. And the fundamental problem that exists between blacks and whites is the total maldistribution of wealth and power, that wealth and power is disproportionately in the hands of white Americans, and that wealth and power has eluded black people from the time that we arrived in August of 1619 to this present day. Although we are now, oh my God, 156 years removed from the end of slavery, the wealth gap that existed in 1865 between blacks and whites has not changed, fundamentally has not changed. In 1865, at the end of the Civil War, Blacks possess less than 1% of the wealth in the country. Today, we possess about 2% of the wealth in the country. Blacks constitute 13% of the population, about 2% of the wealth. Whites constitute 60% of the population, but control 90% of the wealth. There are four times more families, white families, than there are Black families in the United States. But White families possess 20% of the wealth, although they are 5%, um, excuse me, four, they are 4% higher than Black families. And this is all attributable to the way society has been engineered, and Black people have been engineered out of wealth. And until we, to quote James Baldwin, face this, face this fact, we cannot fix it. You have to face it in order to fix it. Let me start off by telling a story a story, a debate that existed between two schools of rabbis in the first century. The rabbis, the prominent rabbis were called Rabbi Hillel and Rabbi uh, Shema. And um, they were very prominent rabbis in the first century. In fact, in fact, they influenced the perspectives of the Apostle Paul and the rabbi from Nazareth named Jesus. But there's a, a scenario in which the two schools debated over it. Here's the scenario. Suppose a man builds a house, but the house is built on, it's built on from wood, built from wood that was stolen from his neighbor. And so the house is already constructed, but his neighbor's stolen wood is in the house. What should be done about it? What would be the just thing to do for the neighbor? Well, one of the rabbis said this, and I'm not sure exactly which one said what, but one of the rabbis said, what should take place is that the house should completely be dismantled and the wood should be taken from the dismantled house and returned back to the person to whom it was stolen from. And then the second rabbi said, no, don't dismantle the house. Instead, calculate how much the wood cost with interest and then make the, the thief pay the victim uh, the compensation for how much the wood and interest would be on the wood. And they debated which one was the proper approach if stolen wood was used to build a house. Now, while they disagree on what should be done, one thing that they did agree on, and that is that the person who stole the wood to build the house should not be allowed to keep the wood and pass down that house that was built from stolen wood to his prodigy, that the persons who had the wood stolen from them should be made whole. 
what they are talking about is basically reparations. They're debating the issue of reparations. Let me define what reparations is. Reparations, and I'm quoting uh, Dr. Sandy Darity, who has written a book. In fact, it came out last year entitled From Here to Equality. He's a professor at Duke University. And this book is perhaps one of the best books out on reparations. But Dr. Darity says, defines reparations as following. Reparations is a program of acknowledgement, redress, and closure for grievous, for a grievous injustice. And he chooses his words carefully. It is a program of acknowledgement, redress, and closure. So he defines it as ARC, A-R-C, acknowledgement, redress, and closure for a grievous injustice. One of the reasons why we have been able to talk about reparations is because of our unwillingness to acknowledge that our country was built with stolen wood. That explodes the myth of bootstrapism, the, the myth of American exceptionalism, the myth of, of America as being this democratic country in which it was founded on principles of justice. And while we did deviate, that injustice was not the norm for how America was established. I will submit to you that America was built on two major injustices. One is the theft of land through manifest destiny of the native population. And then secondly, I would submit it was the theft of labor, those two L words, the theft of labor from Africans. So the two L words would be the theft of land and the theft of labor. Reparations is about addressing the issue of the theft of labor, not only for 246 years, we're talking about 1619 to 1865, that's 246 years in which Blacks in this country work without receiving a paycheck. Now, I want you to really ponder that, to work 246 years without receiving a paycheck, uh, the exploitation and not only the exploitation and the, and the theft of wealth, but also the loss of dignity that was slavery. Slavery was the most barbaric and inhumane, perhaps, institution ever perpetuated on a single people. So you're talking about how do we repair it? Re reparations is not aid to Black people. Reparations is not a gift to Black people. It is compensation for injustices. For example, in 2010, BP, British Petroleum, had a serious oil leak into the Gulf of Mexico. And it, it compromised the environment, marine life, businesses. It had a devastating effect. And BP had to do two things. First of all, they had to reform their practices so that the oil and that which caused the oil would no longer happen again. So that means a discontinuation of the polluting of, of, the, of the ocean. So they had to agree to reform, but then once they discontinued the pouring of, tox, of toxicity into the ocean, they then had to repair the damage and make the victims whole. 
America has done neither things. America has not really reformed, uh, nor has America repaired the descendants of, of slavery. So reparations is a grievous injustice, a repairing of a grievous injustice. Now let's talk about what that injustice is most, most specifically. And I like to give you an acrostic for, for justice. This is the injustice that Black Americans experienced and have experienced since we've been in this country. And here's the acrostic. When I, when I talk about reparations, many people won't think that all this reparations is for slavery. Slavery was in the 19th century. Here we are in the 21st century, 2021. My God, we're almost uh, 160 years removed from, from slavery. And they will also make statements, people will make statements like this. They will say, well, the enslaved people should have gotten reparations. They will agree with that, that the enslaved people, that generation should have gotten reparations. But it's not right to pay the great-great-great-grandchildren to fix the great-great-grandchildren of those enslaved people. But what we fail to realize is that the reason we are experiencing the wealth gap in the present was because of what didn't take place in the past. In other words, had Black Americans received reparations at the close of the war, there would be no reparate need for reparations today because wealth, which is different from income, is always intergenerational. Blacks would have been allowed to pass down wealth to their descendants had Blacks received reparations, had my great-great grandfather, who was a slave. My, my grandfather's father was enslaved. So my, grand, my father's grandfather was an enslaved man. Had he received reparations, which was 40 acres and a mule, he could have passed down reparations or, or wealth to his family that could have been passed down to my generation. But our families have had nothing to pass down because our family has been excluded. Black families have been excluded from securing wealth. At the end of the Civil War, Tecumseh Sherman met with a group of ministers in Savannah, Georgia, in January of 1865. The war ended in, 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 um, in April of 1865. But in January, Tecumseh Sherman met with a group of ministers led by a man by the name of Garrison Frazier. And Tecumseh Sherman, the general, General Sherman, who destroyed Atlanta, burned Atlanta down, and continued to march Union troops to the sea, passed through Savannah, met with about 19 ministers, former slaves. And William Stanton, who was the Secretary of War, that's our Secretary of State, they called it Secretary of War back in, in during those days, asked this group of ministers, what did the freed people want? And they said, we want, we want land and we want farming equipment and we want to be left alone so we can build our, our communities. And as a result of that, and you can Google this, Sherman's field order number 15 was approved. And it was approved by the Lincoln administration. And Sherman's field order number 15 has six provisions, and you can Google it, and it's six provisions. And the first provision was this, that the four million enslaved, now freed people, 
4 million people would receive 40 acres and a mule and $100. And these 40 acres were along the east coast of, uh, of the country, southern east coast going through Georgia and Florida, they would receive 40 acres. It's interesting also that during this time in 1862, that there was land grants given to whites in, in, the, in the West and the Midwest from Native American land. And 40% of whites today still are the beneficiaries of the 1862 land grants that was given. So it's to be 40 acres and a mule from confiscated land of the rebels who were attempting to destroy America, the Confederates. 40 acres and a mule. And then the second provision, interestingly enough, was that no whites could come on these the property except military personnel. And the rationale was that was because of white supremacy, namely that whites had been conditioned to think of themselves as superior and in a position of domination with blacks being in a position of subordination. So because of that subordination, domination, relationship that blacks and whites had, whites were excluded. And this is all a part of the field order number 15. But something happened on April the 14th that changed everything. And you know what happened. April the 14th, a white supremacist named John Wilkes Booth assassinated Abraham Lincoln. And when Abraham Lincoln was assassinated, his successor, who was a white supremacist named Andrew Johnson, repealed field order number 15 and empowered the former Confederates and helped them return back to power in the South. And it was finalized in 1877 with the end of Reconstruction in which white power was reestablished in the South legally until 1968. So Blacks never were able to receive any compensation for not only slavery, 246 years of slavery, but the 100 plus years of post-slavery, which was semi-slavery and total disenfranchisement of the 14th Amendment of equal protection under the law until 1968. Now that's not ancient history. I was alive, I was 10 years old when open housing the open housing bills were passed where blacks had access to legally to the suburbs and were not excluded. 18, 1965, the voting rights bill, which gave black people the right to vote uh, unencumbered. So when Dr. Darity talks about compensation for grievous injustices, here are the injustice. This is how you spell justice, in my opinion. The J stands for Jim Crow, Jim Crow. Reparations is for Jim Crow or segregation. 1896, the Supreme Court passed what was known as Plessy versus Ferguson. Plessy versus Ferguson, a black man who was a mulatto named Plessy, was not allowed to ride in the white section of a streetcar. And the Supreme Court said that states and local municipalities have the right to restrict blacks from being in the white section on the condition that the section that black people were uh, restricted to 
was equal to the section that white people had access to. So it's the doctrine of separate but equal. That's 1896. So if blacks could not attend white schools, then because of segregation or Jim Crow, then blacks had to attend schools that were equal to white schools in terms of dollar allocations. That was the law. That law was never implemented. It was separate and unequal. For example, and Dr. Darity talks about this in his book, in Alabama, where my, where my family is from, Northern Alabama, Athens, Alabama, Limestone County, same place where uh, Mitch McConnell uh, originates from. In Alabama, black students only received 30 cents appropriation for, seg for their segregated education, 30 cents. White students received $15. And that is why most blacks like my grandmother and grandfather only went to the eighth grade. It was, to, it was designed to keep a certain population, namely the black community, poor, uneducated, with low ceilings of opportunity in order to keep a, a working class of sharecroppers to pick the cotton. So this was done. So Plessy versus Ferguson was never implemented. Black facilities, black schools, public services for black people were greatly subpar in comparison to what whites got. So reparations is for the whole issue of Jim Crow because separate but equal was never practiced. In fact, the 1954 Brown decision by the, which was implemented by the NAACP under the leadership of Alexander Houston and Thurgood Marshall. Houston was Marshall, Thurgood Marshall's mentor. They went down in 1952, visit many of the pub in the late forties to visit the, the schools that blacks attended, black students attended in the South. And they realized that it was in violation of separate but equal because the black schools were not equal and they documented it. So they were filing a lawsuit against these schools, the school boards, because they were violating separate but equal. And they wanted black schools to have the same resources that white schools had. Well, the, the Supreme Court in 1954 outlawed separate but equal because had it been implemented, it would have broke, it, it would have broke the country because it would have taken black people up in terms of appropriations to the same levels of whites. So Jim Crow, the second reason, uh, the, the youth for justice is urban renewal. And urban renewal is what took place after 1948. Uh, there was a, uh, a, the Supreme Court passed a law that prohibited real estate agents from discriminating against Blacks who were trying to move into white exclusive suburbs. And banks could no longer deprive Blacks legally of loans in order to move into white suburbs. They also had in that Supreme Court decision a provision that called for slum removal. And slum removal was simply a code to eliminate Black, black businesses in the center city. So in Louisville, for example, 
from 6th Street, which was Walnut Street, now Muhammad Ali, from 6th Street up to about 12th Street, there were 100 Black businesses that serviced Black people during Jim Crow. Because of the Supreme Court decision, it was those businesses were deemed as slums. So they were dismantled, all 100 Black businesses. And then an expressway was put up, was built, and a major artery was created that created a demarcation between the downtown area and West Louisville. And that's the 9th Street divide. So urban renewal was in fact urban destruction of black businesses. And this model was replicated all across the country, which caused black people to lose wealth and further isolated black people and redlined black people. Black people could not get the loans to move into white areas because black presence became, a black presence in a white neighborhood became, blacks became a contagion to white wealth, which is to say that banks lowered the property value of your community on the basis of how white the community was. So the government incentivized white Americans to be racist because the presence of black people would cause your property values to go down. One of the families that, that tried to move into Shively in the 50s was the Wades. And the Wades family tried to move into a, to a white community with the help of a white justice proponent, uh, Ann Brayton and her husband. And uh, Ann Brayton was just a phenomenal justice, racial justice warrior in, this, in our city and nation. Martin Luther King talks about her in his famous uh, letter from a Birmingham jail. But the Wades... The day they moved in, their house was firebombed. There were riots in Shively, and they were forced to move out through terrorism. And the, the, uh, the Braytons were charged with a crime. In fact, they were, they were threatened with 10 years of imprisonment for simply trying to create justice for Black people and Black people having access to wealth, property. Your white wealth is usually in property in which is passed down. So Jim Crow, Jim Crow, urban renewal where blacks are segregated into all black neighborhoods. This just didn't happen. A tornado did not come and blow black people into West Louisville and blow whites into other white sections. This was socially engineered by the federal government, urban renewal. And then not only Jim Crow and urban renewal, and please note that I have the first two letters in justice is talking about issues and injustices that took place during our lifetime. We're not talking about ancient history. Jim Crow, urban renewal, S is for slavery. Slavery, 246 years of, 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 of working without a paycheck, of being labeled property. In fact, if a black person escaped from slavery like a Harriet Tubman or Frederick Douglass, they were called, it was called stealing yourself. You were stealing yourself and you could not steal yourself because you didn't belong to yourself. You were the property of someone else. And they had, and the, the Supreme Court in the, the, uh, the Dred Scott decision of 1857, said that Blacks had no rights that, that whites were bound to respect. Slavery 
not only meant cruel work and the and stolen wealth, but it meant the disintegration of families on auction blocks. It meant cruel punishment for not picking enough cotton or harvesting enough tobacco. It was a cruel and inhumane institution. It was a crime against humanity. So Jim Crow, J. Jim Crow, Ur, U, Urban Renewal, S, Slavery, and then T is terrorism or lynchings. In order to reinforce the system, uh, crimes of terror was instituted against Black people. Billie Holiday sung, sung a song, and there's a movie on Billie Holiday because she sung this song. The FBI came after her called Strange Fruit. And hanging from the popular tree. And the strange fruit she's talking about is black bodies that were lynched and hung to send a message that blacks who did not main, stay in their place in this racial hierarchy would be met with violent consequences. So the terrorism and no white person, there were over 4,000 people who were lynched between the 1880 and 1959, and not one of the lynch persons, the, the, the lynchers, was ever prosecuted. So the terrorism, I is for incarceration, Black incarceration. Black people, as I said, constitute 13% of the population, but we, we are about 50% of those who are incarcerated. If you think about black males who are about five to six percent of the population, we are really about 50 percent of those who are incarcerated. And that is because of laws. Michelle Alexander calls it the new Jim Crow. So incarceration, C is for cops, how black people, black bodies are shot down with impunity, such as George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. And then E is for economic exclusion. I would submit to you that we made a serious mistake the way we did integration. The way we should have done integration in this country are, are, is this. This is the way it should have happened. The mistake we made was we went from segregation, Jim Crow, to desegregation, to, to integration, to disintegration, because we integrated everything except what should have been integrated, and that was the wealth. We should have integrated the wealth. Integration always meant black people moving into white space where whites still had power and control. What should have happened was segregation, desegregation, reparations, reconciliation. Because reconciliation will come as a natural byproduct of reparation. I close and then I'll entertain some questions. Stokely Carmichael said that you cannot integrate if you're in the sixth grade with the high, with the with the sixth grade bully. He said if you're thin, you cannot integrate with the sixth grade bully because if you form a coalition with the sixth grade bully, the bully will always dictate the terms of the relationship. He says only when you lift some weights and get strong. Can you have a relationship with the bully as equals? Right now, because of the absence of black wealth, black people can never have a relationship with whites as equals, never. We can have the sentimental relationship, 
but to have a substantive relationship, we can't do it because black people don't have wealth and power. Everything is dictated by, by whites. Who gets the grants? What laws get passed? Everything. What is normativity? These are issues that whites get to dictate and blacks have to, have to acquiesce to. It's only when black people are made whole through reparations that we can truly have reconciliation. Let me just give one last statement. And that is a statement by Amos Wilson. Amos Wilson says, justice requires not only the ceasing and desisting of injustice, but also requires reparations for injustices and damages inflicted for prior wrongdoing. The essence of justice is the redistribution of gains earned through the perpetuation of injustice. If restitution is not made and reparations not instituted to compensate for prior injustices, those injustices are in effect rewarded. In other words, you get to keep the wood that you stole to build the house. And the benefits of such rewards conferred on the perpetrators of injustice will continue to draw interest to be reinvested and to be passed on to their children, which means you get to pass the house down to your children from the, that was built with stolen wood, who will use their inherited advantages to continue to exploit the children of victims of, of the injustice of their ancestors. Consequently, injustice and inequality will be maintained across the generations, as well as the delirious social, economic, and political outcome. So if, if we admit, okay, the house was built with stolen wood, but then we just passed the house down for a hundred and plus years and you pass the poverty down to the people who had their house, the wood stolen, then you will continue to see in 2021 what you saw in 1865 and you will consider to see, you will continue to see, but only worse in 2050, what we're seeing now because we will not deal with what is fundamentally broken in America. And that is the maldistribution of wealth between blacks and whites. Thank you so very much. And uh, this time I'll entertain some questions. Thank you, Dr. Cosby. Uh, we have a couple of questions. And um, the first one is, how do you envision a new United States economy after true reparations have been embraced? I think that we've been conditioned to think that it's a zero sum game, that to lift black Americans means to diminish white Americans and it's not a zero sum game. I think that first of all, it is a justice claim. And sometimes people raise the question, well, why should I pay for something that my ancestors did. And my, question, my response is that this was not something that simply happened during your ancestors' time. This is something that took place during our lifetime. Jim Crow, urban renewal, mass incarceration, redlining, these are recent events. But part of being an American means that you have to pay bills that you didn't cause and fight wars that you didn't start. That's what it means to be a citizen. So I did nothing to Geronimo, Cochise, Sitting Bull, and Chief Joseph of the Nace Purse Nation. I did nothing to them, that's 19th century. 
But every year, taxes are taken out of my check in order to repair the indigenous population for what America, the atrocities America committed against them. I believe that, that justice helps make a better America. And that if we do not, if we do not provide economic justice and repair to black Americans, then black Americans will continue to be tethered to the bottom and the permanent lower caste in, in the United States. And there's no other way I don't think we can, do, can, can address this with except reparations be made because we, we've often been told that, okay, if you get a better education, well, education does not fix the wealth gap. It may help your income, but it does not fix wealth. According to a Duke University study, a college, a black with a person with a college degree has less wealth than a white person who dropped out of high school. And because wealth is something that is inherited, it's passed down. Next question. Okay, the next question is, can you name specific actions for allies to take, including organizations to support financially? Well, ultimately it's going to take the federal government to fix this because the federal government incentivized whites to be racist because of redlining. However, I do think that there are some things that individuals can do and uh, that is individuals can start supporting black-led institutions uh, and by black-led institutions like Simmons College is a black-led institution, a historical black college university and uh, black-led, I mean black blacks are in governance uh, so you can support black-led institutions. You can shop at black, black businesses. If you're, for example, if your organization is planning something, you can you can think automatically. How can I, uh, if if the if the food has to be catered, how can I find a black caterer? How can I not just trade among whites, other whites who are like me? One of the things that perpetuates economic inequality is not simply what whites do to black people or against black people, but it, what's whites do for each other routinely that black people are excluded from. Okay, the next question is, what specifically do you believe would be fair and effective reparations for ADOS? That's a good question. <laughs> well, Dr. Darity, in, in fact, the ADOS way page, ADOS was founded by two brilliant people who I admire, uh, Yvette Carnell and Antonio Moore, and they've got an ADOS webpage in which they outline what is reparations and what it should go for. For example, healthcare. Blacks should, should get free healthcare. The racism and white supremacy is emotionally distressing. And healthcare, helping in terms of Sadiqa Reynolds is, is, and the Urban League is attempting to help Blacks who were excluded from the opportunity from FHA loans. The FHA loans that whites got, Blacks did not get. In fact, Blacks didn't get Social Security. Social Security came out in 1934. Blacks were excluded from Social Security and were citizens. So how much is going to cost? 
I, I don't, I can't say, I know that it's, it's, it's trillions. I will say this, Dr. Martin King said that when whites have an, a problem with unemployment and economic, it's an economic issue. So the, the trillions that we've spent to fix the economy because of, of, of uh, COVID-19, that's an economic problem. When blacks have unemployment, it's a social problem. And the social problem is that there's something culturally defective about black people. It's the choices black people make that is making them poor. I would submit to you that it is not the choices black people make, it's the choices black people have. Okay, what role does tax reform play to enable reparations? Well, I believe in a progressive tax and I think something is wrong when the tax system is set up to benefit the 1%. You know, we've been, poor whites have been pitted against, uh, it's unfortunate, uh, against those in Appalachia and been pitted against urban blacks and immigrants. And we've been conditioned, poor whites have, to, to look at their lack of economic agency at the people who are beneath them. But instead of looking at the people who are beneath you, they should be looking at the people who are above you, who have gotten the lion's share of tax breaks over the last 40 years. We're proving, and, and the Biden administration is proving what can happen when the middle class gets resources. They help uh, energize the economy because they're spending money and that's what's taking place. So I do believe in a progressive tax, but while I believe in a progressive tax, which is reform, tax reform, that is not reparations. Tax reform is a class issue. Reparations is a race issue. Reparations is fixing black people because of the injustices that have been inflicted upon them. Okay, who should be eligible for reparations. You have the ADOS and if you would name the other black folks that. This is what, this is what uh, the recipients of reparations should not be based on skin color. There are, for example, blacks from the Caribbeans and West Africa who have come to this country post-1965 immigration bill. And like, if you come from Haiti, you're black, you have my same skin color, but you do not have my same lineage. Now, I believe that Haitians should receive reparations, but Haitians should receive reparations from the French. Okay. Blacks who are the descendants of slaves, like I can trace my lineage back to Alabama, a slavery in Alabama, my great grandfather. So blacks who can trace their lineage back to slavery should be the recipients of reparations and not newly arrived immigrants from other countries. That's not to say that they should not have justice and racial justice, but reparations is a unique justice claim that those who are descendants of slaves have against the federal government just like the Jews had a reparations claim against Germany. 
and the Japanese had a reparations claim against the United States that they received under Ronald Reagan in 1986 for internment. That is reparations. And all, all Asians don't get reparations. Vietnamese are Asian, Chinese are Asian, but they don't get reparations. Only the Japanese do who were victims. Dr. Cosby, are there organizations or bills pushing for reparations that, could, that we can join to bring it to the federal level? There is a, a bill, HR 40, which is, is being discussed. It was first proposed by John Conyers, Congressman John Conyers out of the Detroit area. And that was in 1987, the year after the Japanese received reparations, blacks said, now look, if the Japanese received it, should not black people receive it? Because that took place in the 1940s. Redlining took place up until 1968. How do you repair black Americans? And so he submitted HR 40 that has never been able to get out of committee since 1987 when it was first proposed. There is a serious discussion taking place now about HR 40. Um, Biden is, is in, and, and of course, Kamala Harris is in favor of at least looking at HR 40. And HR 40 is simply a study. It's not proposing reparations, but a study to look at the justifications for reparations. So there is that movement, but it's a growing movement that is uh, I, I, that is really sweeping the country. We just have a few more questions and Reverend Crosby has uh, agreed to stay just a little bit longer to answer these questions. So uh, the next question is, reparations could not merely be settled on a dollar note. What other forms of restitution must the U.S. deliver to the descendants of slaves? I would uh, say that that I would never minimize the dollar amount, that the dollar amount is important. But there are some other things that in addition to the dollar amount, such as health care, uh, free college, FBA loans. For example, blacks don't receive many FBA loans. Uh, FBA loans, free college, monies. What about, what about taxes? What about blacks not having to pay United States taxes. That's that one way you could do it. You know, whatever the bottom line is this, Repar injustice took money out of black people's pockets. Reparations is putting money back into black people's pockets. Because as long as black people remain as the, as the bottom caste in America, we will experience oppression. Black people are hated because we're black. And what I mean by that, we're hated because we're black because our very presence makes a statement constantly about American justice. So we're hated because we're black, but we are mistreated because we are poor. And black people are poor. Our institutions are poor. Simmons, all the HBCUs like Simmons College do not have wealth. There is 101 historical black colleges and universities in America combined, listen to this number, combined. I'm talking about Howard, Morehouse, Spelman, Simmons, Kentucky State, Tennessee State, 101 of them. Their combined endowment is, is $2 billion. Berea College alone 
has a billion dollar endowment and our 101 HBCUs to combine have $2 billion. And Harvard has about 50 billion in endowment. 50, one college has more than all, and that's because blacks do not have wealth because we've been excluded from wealth. My father wanted to attend the University of Louisville. His father was a sharecropper, Alabama. My father went to the University of Louisville. But my father, who was the first black chairman of the Jefferson County Public Schools in the 1990s, Lakin Cosby, could not attend the University of Louisville because he was black. The University of Louisville did not integrate until 1951, which means he paid taxes, but he could not go to any state school in Kentucky except municipal college for Negroes. Does my father, does my father, is he owed anything because of this? You know, yes. that's something to think about. Your presentation is being recorded by Solutions to Violence and will air on WFMP 106.5 radio, March 22nd, 23rd, and 24th. And Solutions to Violence airs on Mondays at 5 p.m., Tuesdays, 8 a.m., and Wednesday at 6 a.m. So we'd like you to, you know, tell your friends about us, but we still have more questions. Um, Maybe historically white churches and schools should look at how they accumulate their wealth, their buildings, their properties, and take away their endowment to fund historically black churches. And there's a lot of support. Someone is 100% supportive of reparations and follow the platform on reparations from the movement for black lives. Um, and I don't know if you, if this is recorded, so we should be able to send you any questions that others might have and, and you might be able to answer, but we have been very informed. I have a question for my confusion, Dr. Norris Shelton, and I know he has an honorary doctorate, has written about. American Descendants of Slaves in his little black book. What's your thoughts on that? Because he's a local person. I think that Dr. Shelton, there's merit in what Dr. Shelton is, is, is attempting to do. I think that um, uh, the American Descendants of Slave movement, which he started and we honored him at Simmons, is a, is a, a distinct movement from what ADOS is, which is a national movement that is driven by social media. But I think ultimately the, the ultimate goal is the repairing of, of, of black people. And I would close by, by simply saying this, and that is that the reason people don't understand the legitimacy of the reparations claim is because they don't understand the gravity of the crime. And we don't understand the gravity of the crime because of historic, historical illiteracy in America and because of how we edit history. In fact, the Trump administration was pushing for the 1776 project in response to the 1619 project of Nicole Hannah-Jones because the Nicole Hannah-Jones narrative takes in the atrocities committed against black people, which, which we were never taught intentionally. So until we understand the gravity of the crime, 
we will never understand the legitimacy of the, of the, of the claim. And with that, Dr. Cosby, I want to thank you. I want to let everyone know that we also have another organization branch here in Louisville, which is part of a national organization, which is ASALA, the Association for the Study of African-American Life and History. And right now there's a push to get our history, Black history, which is American history, into the school system. And it's factual based and truth, truthful. So that's the movement that's going on. And if you wanna know more about ASALA, you can contact FOR, Third Thursday Lunch, or Source of Justice. I also want to invite you to our Third Thursday Lunch for April. Charles Booker will be our featured speaker. And he started a movement from the hood to the holler. And I think you'll want to know more about that. And with that, thank you all for coming. And good night. Good afternoon. <laughs> and um, if anybody has any questions. I appreciate it being with you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Okay. Take care. I'll be in touch. Okay. Bye-bye, everyone. Thank you very much. Thank okay. you. Bye-bye. Folks, we're out of time. We want to thank our radio audience for listening. We also want to thank Roddy Streeter for his help with the recording and Carolyn Brooks Johnson for her contribution as our engineer. The Solutions to Violence program featuring Dr. Kevin Cosby and produced by Source of Justice and the Louisville Fellowship for Reconciliation will be repeated tomorrow at 8 a.m. and Wednesdays at 6 a.m. You can listen live stream by visiting our website at forwardradio.org and clicking on Listen Live Now. For Solutions to Violence, I'm Jeff Johnson. My co-host is Jamie McMillan. Thanks for listening.